Welcome to Backyard Oasis, a podcast designed by and for older adults living in the beautiful Pioneer Valley of Western Massachusetts and produced in the tech studios at Greenfield Community College in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Backyard Oasis reaches out to older adults who seek knowledge to help them live more thoughtfully, healthily, and happily who hope to inspire others with their ideas and who serve their communities in the interest of the greater good. We hope you join us frequently in our pleasant backyard oasis for wide-ranging conversations with a diversity of people who are growing older and want to talk about it. Hi, this is Dennis Lee with Denise Schwartz. We're calling this episode of Backyard Oasis, Can You Believe This Really Happened? Our guest today is Ed Orzakowski, author of the book, You Will Like It Here, the amazing story of the former Belchertown State School and one particular resident, Donald Vitkus. Hi, Ed. Thanks for being here. Let's let's start by hearing a little bit from you. You're actually going to read your own words. Be my guest. Okay, Dennis. Thank you. This is uh, the opening of the book. Okay, now, are you happy? The woman shut off the car and glared at me in her rearview mirror. I didn't answer. I was sweaty and felt like I was going to puke. When you're six years old, every trip is long, but it's even longer when you can't roll down the window in the middle of summer. She wouldn't even stop to let me pee. That must be it, she said to the man beside her, pointing to a brick building with a clock at the top. The lady wore a dark blue dress and hat with a kind of veil thing on it, and he was in a brown suit. This must have been an important day. They got out, and a man came around to my side holding a big tan envelope. Let's go, he said, grabbing my arm. He pulled me along the sidewalk toward a set of granite stairs while the woman gripped her pocketbook with both hands like she thought I was going to steal it or something. I had to walk fast to keep up. At the top of the stairs, the man pushed a button at the entrance of the building and I heard a bell ring inside. You'll be happy here, he said, looking down at me. That's right, the woman added. You'll be with a lot of other kids like yourself. You'll like it here. When the door opened, another lady led us down a long hall, the hard heels of her shoes echoing off the walls. She took us into a room where a woman sat at a desk behind stacks of paper, folders, and a typewriter. The place smelled like stinky flowers, but I couldn't see any. To one side was a row of dark wood cabinets, each with a bunch of drawers with little signs on them. Near the window, a fan turned slowly back and forth. The window was shut tight. Here they are, the door lady said, and left. You must be tired, the desk lady said to the man and woman standing to shake their hands. We're a long way from Boston. She was big, like her desk, and she had on a dress with big flowers all over it. The three of them put on smiles, told each other their names, and she extended her hand toward chairs by her desk. Then she turned to me. You sit over there. The smile had vanished from her voice. She pointed to her bench on the side of the room, away from the fan. The man handed her the envelope, and she unwound a red string at the top and took out a bunch of papers. I knew they were about me. So, this is Donald. The desk lady picked up a pencil and scanned the first page through a pair of glasses that looked like someone had cut them in half. 
They were attached to a cord that dangled from her neck. Born 1943 in Waltham, Massachusetts, she read out loud. IQ of 41, moron. She leaned toward me, tilted her head, and examined me over those glasses. I didn't like the way she did that. And the stinky flower smell got even stronger. You wouldn't guess, would you? She scanned me up and down. Look at that blonde hair, those bright hazel eyes. He looks normal enough. I gazed through the closed window at a building in the distance. It had bars on the windows. Some of them just don't show it, she said, and resumed reading. Grandfather, below par, mentally alcoholic. That's a great combination, ain't it? I see at least he doesn't mess his pants or bed, and he knows how to feed himself and get dressed. She stared at me again. That's better than a lot of them in here. She tapped her pencil on the desk while her eyes moved down the page. Can you believe this, she said without looking up. On day child was born, mother had worked all day, returned to rooming house, delivered self of child, walked down two flights of stairs to telephone former foster mother who called ambulance. Mother committed to Lancaster. She handed a pen to the man and woman. They wrote something on a couple of papers while she picked up her phone. Elizabeth, tell nursery one that we're bringing another one over. Right, number 3394, and she hung up. And that's the start of the book. You will really like it here. Um, it's kind of difficult even to hear that it actually happened. You know, it seems like something something in a, in a bad movie. And how did you start or how did you even think you wanted to write this book? Uh, and let me let me go back because I was going to originally before you were doing the reading. I, you were a, a school teacher, so that that's your background, right? Did you always want to write? Did you have a desire to write a book before this happened? N- never a book. I had written some freelance articles for newspapers and magazines, but never anything like a book. All right. So what happened that you decided to write a book? Um, well, I was assisting a man named Benjamin Ritchie, who was a professor at UMass, who had a son at Belchertown State School. Uh, ben was the head of an organization called Advocacy Network that started off as the Friends of Belchertown. And uh, my wife and I were on his board. Uh, my wife's sister, Carol, was a, f- a resident of Belchertown State School at one time. So I was assisting Ben at a, a, a book reading. He had read his had written his own book called uh, Crimes Against Humanity at Holyoke Community College. And at the end of that reading, a man came up to me, introduced himself to, him, to me, and said, uh, my name is Donald Vitkus. I'm a, I went to Belchertown State School, and I've been looking for someone to help me write my story. Mm-hmm. And I had recently retired from teaching and had uh, done some writing, as I said, and I said, okay, well, that sounds like a good project. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to write the book? <laughs> Probably four years, three, mm-hmm. to, three to four years. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's kind of fascinating how you decide to write the book, and then it takes over your life, I bet. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Uh, and we became much closer than I anticipated. Uh, we, we became very close friends. His, his son called me to tell me once that... Uh, you know, Ed, uh, you're my dad's best friend, oh. and that really threw me. Mm-hmm. That's really wonderful. I mean, I don't even know where to start. Hearing those first two pages just, well, you know, it kind of chokes you up. It's hard to believe, number one, that a child would have to hear someone call him or her a moron mm-hmm. and then discuss your past in front of you. 
what that six-year-old boy must have been thinking at that time, I can't even imagine. So he must have shared so much with you so that you could distill everything and come up with this book. Did he ever talk about that very first day in ways that you didn't record? I mean, was he terrified? Was he resigned? What did he tell you about that? Uh, I don't recall him telling me anything beyond what's in the opening of the book there, but he did tell me many things that I'm sure uh, he hadn't told his own family or his wife. Um, and it was emotional interviewing him at times. I mean, he, he cried. Sometimes I cried. Mm -hmm. Where is he now? Uh, Donald passed away about three years ago. Uh -huh. And actually, he, he's, he, he's buried in the cemetery at Belchertown State School. Oh. It was very unusual because that cemetery had been closed to burials for many years, but he, said, he insisted, he didn't just say, I want to be buried there because I want to be with my brothers and sisters. Wow. wow. What was his life like right. uh, after he got out? After he got out, uh, he got out of when he was about 18 years old. It was a time of Vietnam. Uh, he received a, a draft card from uh, the draft service, the draft board, and it said that he was classified 4F, which meant mentally or physically unable to serve. Hmm. And he knew, in his case, what that meant. And he had already been labeled a moron at Belchertown State School. Now he's labeled 4F. Uh, he wanted to remove that because he said, he, I'll never be, able, never be able to get a job anywhere. So he wrote, he went down to the draft board and convinced them to change his, uh, his, his label on his draft, and he ended up getting drafted and serving in Vietnam. So he, wow. w he was there for about a year. Um, when he got out, uh, he worked for a long time at West Vaco Envelope, and I think it was in West Springfield. Mm -hmm. uh, running a press, and uh, their company moved to Mexico, and because of NAFTA, and he got uh, educated at Holyoke Community College as a result of that, and Aww. ultimately got his degree in human services and uh, became a caretaker for the same kinds of kids that he grew up with. Oh, so the question I have just sitting here listening to that. You think to yourself, how did this happen? You're talking about somebody that's classified as a moron, and now you're telling me he ends up going to school and he had a normal life. So how do, talk about the, what was going on in our culture. Right. How did this happen? How did he end up classified as a moron? And how did this whole thing, how did it happen that he ended up at Belchertown, and how did he, how did he survive? Okay. Right, yeah. Well, uh, Belchertown opened in 1922. Um, it, it was called Belchertown School for the Feeble-Minded when it opened. And the, the reason it opened, it, was, it had good intentions. It was a place for uh, people that had mental handicaps uh, to go and live for a while and get some training and maybe be able to make it on their own on the outside. Uh, so it started off with good intentions, but over the years it became understaffed, overcrowded, and became a hellhole. Yeah. It, was, it was an ugly place. Uh, he was in six different foster homes before he ended up at Belchertown. When he was three years old, he was tested and determined to have an IQ of 41. 
and that's how he got labeled a moron. Moron, imbecile, and idiot were three clinical labels according to your uh, IQ. Now, is that unusual to be labeled at that young age? I thought it was unusual. Yeah, I mean, how accurate can an IQ test be at, at that at age? Three, right. But uh, he was told so often, so many times after he was at Belchertown, that you're nothing but an idiot, a moron, a retard. He came to believe it. Wow. Did he believe that all of his life, or did he realize as time went on that he was pretty much okay? The way I like to put it is that he left Belchertown, but Belchertown never left him. Oh. Uh, he was, you know, that had scarred him for life. I mean, he was a very resilient person and driven to uh, improve things. He, he said he wanted his story told so that the same thing would never happen again. But it uh, did. Uh, well, it, it did to many other people. And yeah. Belchertown was a mixture. It, was a, it became a catch-all of uh, kids that did have developmental disabilities but it also was uh, for people that were cast-offs because of uh, family issues, mm-hmm. uh, alcoholism, poverty, etc. Mm-hmm. How did writing this book change you? I'm not sure that it changed me because, as I say, my wife's sister was a patient there. And they, by the way, they were all called patients, not uh-huh. residents, uh, regardless of their ability level or their illnesses. There were some people that were also physically ill. Um, so the only way that it, I can think that it changed me is that uh, um, he and I became very close. Um, I didn't expect that to happen. I guess that's a change. Uh, uh, and actually, uh, when he passed away, um, the priest couldn't make it. So uh, I was called upon to uh, uh, be the uh, I don't know what you would call it. The, the per- or something. Yeah. The person who, who, yeah. who spoke and ran, yeah. ran the service. Yeah. And uh, I got up to speak. It was uh, out in the center of Belchertown State School in, in the uh, cemetery. And I broke down. I, I couldn't speak for, seemed like a long, long time oh, to me. Oh, I can imagine. And it took a while to gather my, myself. And uh, so I guess that's a, a definite change mm-hmm. and impact anyway. Now, has this spurred you on to write something else? It has. Um, when Donald and I were doing a book reading at the Senior Center in Northampton, a man, before we started, made it a point to introduce himself to me. His name was Dennis English. Uh, he was also a resident there at Belchertown State School. He wanted to uh, have someone write his life story. I began interviewing him. Uh, but he passed away before we could finish. Oh, dear. And then I happened, we were at a coffee house, Donald and I, talking about book readings and our schedule. And a woman was sitting near us, and she introduced herself because she said she couldn't help overhearing what we were talking about. And she said, I grew up at Belchertown, too. So while they were talking, I went out to my car to get a copy of Donald's book to give to her. And while she was still at the table, I I handed it to her. Before she left, I said, you know, there's a lot of pictures there in the back of the book. Uh, So she opened the book uh, to those pages, and her hands started to tremble. And I knew then that I wanted to talk to her. Oh, Mm -hmm. my. So that's how she became the subject of my second book. So you're doing that now? Doing it now, I've been interviewing her and transcribing and writing for probably another three years, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe more, I'm not sure, and very close to sending it out to get published now. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Was her experience similar to uh, others and to Don Vickis? In many ways, it was similar. Um, but she was there 10 years after Donald. And the man that I mentioned before, Ben Ritchie, had uh, spearheaded a class action lawsuit that brought some changes and improvements to not only Belchertown, but other places across the country. Um, so while she was there, it, it started off pretty much the way it started out. It had been with Donald, but over the period of time when she was from seven years old to almost 18 when she left, uh, things improved somewhat. Mm -hmm. Do you know how? Can you mention how some of the Im what some of the improvements were? Um, the attendants were less abusive and neglectful. Uh, the, the place that was cleaned up, it was a place where urine and feces was in the air all the time. It was a, a loud, raucous place. Um, that improved. It wasn't perfect by any means, but mm -hmm. uh, it got better. And she, because she was really a normal kid, put that in quotation marks, like Donald, the attendants began to confide in her and trust her. And uh, she, well, I didn't tell you, her sister was also there at Belgium's oh State School. Mm. That's something that Darlene did not know before she was sent there. She didn't know she had brothers and sisters because she was also uh, not brought up in her parents' home. So did she discover her sister while she was there? There was a meeting with a social worker and a woman that she didn't recognize when she was uh, seven years old. Uh, and this woman that she did not recognize told her, uh, oh, Darlene, uh, you have a sister there. Her name is Gail. Tell her I said hi. That's how she found out that she had any brothers and sisters. And it turned out that she had, there were 14 in her family. Oh, my. Hmm. That's just amazing. You know, I don't even know what to say about this. It's so hard to imagine. Life is not always easy for people who have good starts in their lives, you know? How do folks who were in that school and others like them, how do they manage? Do they constantly have to readjust? Do they find someone, maybe like you, who becomes a mentor and a good friend? Maybe being a good friend is even more important than being a mentor. How do they do it? I think uh, they do it through determination and resilience. Uh, I mean, there were some people's uh, attendance that were good people, uh, and that's a point that uh, when we do book readings, several people have come up to me and said, you know, I used to work there, and there were good people there. Um, but it was an institutional atmosphere, and uh, many of them just got, got wrapped up in that. What um, are, you, are your concerns about mental health? I think you have some ongoing you've been worried about how we're all involved with this or in the community and mental health well first of all it's it, the people at Belchertown were not uh mentally ill they were the term then was retarded developmentally delayed mm -hmm. um so um when Belchertown closed in 1992 uh, many of those kids uh, and adults, they were not, they were not all kids. They, they were sent to, uh, might be called halfway homes, uh, halfway houses, uh, into the community. And, uh, in, in some cases uh, they were run by the state still very few of them now run by the state. Most of them are run by private contractors. And, uh, because there is little oversight too many places for the department to keep track of, I think. 
Um, sometimes there is little Belcher Town conditions still. Mm-hmm. So conditions have improved a lot, but there definitely still are problems. So when do you think uh, your book will actually be out? I hope to get it to a publisher soon, like uh, before the end of this year, and be out sometime next year. Mm-hmm. When you're writing a book, how do you know what you're writing is good? I mean, do you have someone that you trust and says, nah, that doesn't work, that works? Do you ha- is it your wife? Is it a friend? What's the process? It's not my wife because it, it, it's too close to her, her sister having been there. Oh, she's, okay. Gail is my wife. She's never read this book because it's too difficult a, a subject for her. Uh, but I've been in several uh, writers groups, and uh, we I get good feedback. We, we exchange comments about each other's writing. Um, and I've taken several workshops and courses, but mostly it's through the writers' groups. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're pretty confident of what you have when you send it to the publisher? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And did, do they make the decision whether they want the book, or, or do you know they're going to accept the book? How does that work? In this case, it was published by a local publisher, Levelist Press, which is uh, part of the collective copies in Amherst and uh, the Florence section of Northampton. Uh, I gave the, the manuscript to Steve, who runs the place, and he uh, approved it, and they went ahead with the, the publishing. Mm-hmm. So you're pretty confident that it's going to be okay, right? Uh, I think so, because this book, uh, Donald's Story, turned out to be their bestseller of right. all time. What? Wow, that's interesting. How, how many books did you sell? I'm not sure exactly, but uh, you know, it's a small press, uh, two or 3,000. Wow. And you're happy with that? Do you, feel, do you feel like you accomplished what you wanted to when you uh, wrote the book? Yeah, I'd like to have a bestseller course, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy with this, yeah. yeah. Now, i got to ask you, is there anything else that we didn't ask you? You know, we, we Denise and I were talking yeah. before this, and we talked on the phone a few weeks ago, and but then we think, you know, th- this is something that most people would want, and we take notes and we do it, then we think, but, but maybe there's something you want to tell us that we didn't think to ask. Um, the only thing that I, well, what comes to mind is that Belchertown closed in 1992 and is being redeveloped, and, and the same thing happens in places like this across the country. And the concern is that, as Dar- Darlene, the woman that I'm interviewing now, said, uh, you know, when all those old buildings are gone, it'll be like I never existed, like the place never existed, like this never happened, which was one reason why Donald wanted me to write his story. So there are still some of the residence halls left there, uh, uh, there is the administration building is still standing, and there's a, a woman that I know pretty well who's uh, trying to get the administration building preserved and become a museum, mm-hmm. uh, so that it'll be a lasting monument to the people that live there. Now, the woman that you're writing the book about now, uh, what is she doing? She lives uh, actually within walking distance of me. She lives in Florence. Uh, she is. Uh, she works part time for her son, who runs. Uh, uh, it's called the Vac Store on uh, Route Nine in Hadley, Russell Street. I know that. I used to do commercials for the Vac oh, Store. Okay. All right. <laughs> yes, I did. I, All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Her, she got married. Uh, her husband went to UMass, and he started the Vac Store. Uh, now her two, one of her sons still operates it, and Denise. Uh, that's uh, that's I'm, I'm amazing sorry, because I, that's Steve Volpe, I believe. 
that yeah, had the exactly. back story. Yeah, yep. Steve for, for years, I sold sold vacuum cleaners there, and I, I never thought right. we'd be talking to you and bring his, up the vacuum son yeah, is, It's is a small Tony, world. Two sons, Tony and uh, Darren, and one of them runs a vac store, and Darlene still helps out there. Wow, is, that, is Darlene, is she going to read this? Is she reading what you're writing now? Oh, yeah. I, I've, every time I've interviewed her and I've written a chapter, we, I read it with her or to her. Uh, she's had the entire manuscript. And so, And there are all the photographs and parts of her records in the back, is just like in Donald's. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why it's so important to keep writing, because she was right. If there is not a record of what happened to her and everyone else who went to that school and other schools like them, it will be like they don't didn't exist. It will be. They will just disappear. So keep writing. This is really important. Do you think after this book, do you have another book? I don't have another book exactly. Well, I have some thoughts in mind. It, it'll be something different. It'll be a different subject. I wondered mm-hmm. about that. Is this yeah. going to be your niche? Because yeah. I think it would take an emotional toll. Well, yeah, it's somewhat of an emotional toll, but also the time that it takes. Uh, I'm the kind of pre- – well, I'm 77 years old. I'm not going to – be acquiring an agent probably because they, they want a young person who's going to develop, you know, right. produce a lot of books along yeah. the line. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, we thank you for being here. Uh, you drove up from Florence. We are uh, semi-neighbors, I think. I see you in a few places and we say hi. And so that's how I ended up asking you to be here today. And I appreciate you uh, driving up uh, from Florence as we speak. It was in the rain. So yeah. thank you very much. And, of course, uh, Ed Ozerski, thanks for being with, with us. And uh, it's really an amazing story. Uh, the name of the book is You Will Like It Here. And if somebody hears this and says, I got to read that book. How do they get the book? The easiest way. It's available in the in the stores in uh, collective copies in Amherst and in Florence. But it's also available on Amazon. It's also an ebook, and I've also recorded it as a. Uh, uh, audio book. That's interesting because, and we should mention, I didn't mention this earlier, Ed did some radio. He did years ago, you did. Uh, you were a newsman in Hartford, and as you can tell, he's got considerable resonance in his voice, and I bet you his uh, audio book is uh, pretty darn good. All right, I, I enjoy doing it. I appreciate that, Dan. Thank yeah, you. sure. Great to see you, Ed. Be well, and thank you so much for joining us for Backyard Oasis. Thank you. This concludes today's podcast. We're always looking for new ideas, so feel free to reach out to Judy Raper, Associate Dean of Community Engagement at Greenfield Community College at 413-775-1819 if you have an idea you'd love to share. Special thanks to the creators of Backyard Oasis, Denise Schwartz, Chad Fuller, Dennis Lee and Christine Copeland. Have a great day.